My guest today has such a diverse skill set that it's almost difficult to summarize. Andy Stumpf enlisted in the Navy when he was a junior in high school, entering military service in 1996. After completing boot camp, he went on to basic underwater demolition SEAL training, also known as BUDS. After earning his trident, he began his SEAL career attached to SEAL Team 5 in Coronado, California. In 2002, he joined the most elite counterterrorism unit in the Navy, the Naval Surface Warfare Development Group, a.k.a. DevGru or SEAL Team 6. While on a combat deployment, an Iraqi insurgent shot Andy in the hip at close range with an AK-47. Doctors told him it would be years, if ever, before he recovered the use of his leg and returned to full active duty. Well, four years later, after extensive work, Andy returned to the Naval Special Warfare Center as the leading petty officer for second phase BUDS training. While completing his two-year instructor tour, Andy submitted his package to become a commissioned officer. In 2008, he became the first E6 selection commissioned through the limited duty officer program in the history of Naval Special Warfare. Upon commissioning, he joined SEAL Team 3 and completed his final combat tour in Afghanistan. Throughout his 17-year career, Andy executed hundreds of combat missions throughout the world in support of the global war on terror, including the hostage rescue of Jessica Lynch. He was medically retired in June of 2013. His awards and declarations include five bronze stars, four with valor, the Purple Heart, the Joint Service Commendation Medal, the Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal with valor, three Navy and Marine Corps uh, Achievement Medals, two Combat Action Ribbons, and the Presidential Unit Citation. After retirement, Andy continues to support the SEAL community and their families. In 2015, he set two world records after jumping from 36,500 feet and flying over 18 miles in a wingsuit in an effort to raise $1 million for the Navy SEAL Foundation. Post-military, his business experience includes managing corporate development, licensing, and charitable initiatives for a global fitness brand. He also founded a consulting firm dedicated to ensuring that the lessons learned from the global war and terror are utilized by business leaders as well as federal, state, and local entities. Andy also hosts the fantastic Cleared Hot, a podcast with close to 20 million views on YouTube. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Andy Stump. My name is John Becker. For the past four decades, I've dedicated my life to protecting tactical operators. During this time, I've worked with many of the world's top law enforcement and military units. As a result, I've had the privilege of working with the amazing leaders who take teams into the world's most dangerous situations. The goal of this podcast is to share their stories in hopes of making us all better leaders, better thinkers, and better people. Welcome to The Debrief. Andy, thank you so much for being here today. It's uh, it's great to see you, man. Yeah, good to see you too. So maybe just for those that are not, you know, deeply entrenched with the uh, with the Andy Laura, I gave a uh, a bio of you, but why don't we give just kind of a quick summary of your your career and the teams, uh, just for context. Well, first, I wasn't aware that there was any Andy Laura, and I really hope that there isn't. 
and that there never will be. Um, but as far as my time in the military, I joined in 1996 and boot camp occupational A school uh, for what the Navy calls it straight to the SEAL pipeline. So right into BUDS uh, early 1997, checked in in January, finished that up. Basic uh, airborne jump school in uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, one of the most horrendous experiences of my life, and then checked into uh, SEAL Team 5 on the West Coast, stayed there until 2002, where I went through selection at a command on the East Coast, then went back to uh, BUDS as an instructor, picked up a commission at that point, so 12 years of enlisted service, then did five more years as an officer, actually four years and 11 months and one day. Don't want to be imprecise because somebody will, like, to call me I'm a liar because I shorted the government, you know, 29 days or however many days are in June or actually July. I don't even remember last day of June or last day of July. 2013 was my last day, uh, but did a final operational deployment at SEAL Team 3 and then finished my career off as the operations officer at the training detachment that oversees all the training for the West Coast SEAL teams. What what made you decide to go from enlisted to, uh, to an officer? That's kind of an interesting uh, career strategy. Why'd you do it? I felt keyhole at the time. I didn't, I, if I had picked up E7, so in, and I can only speak about the Navy, but in the Navy and specifically the SEAL community, the jump between E6 to E7, I would describe it as you are launching from middle management on the enlisted side of the house to a leadership role. You're going to become a chief. So you're going to be holding a senior enlisted role inside of any operational detachment. Uh, and there are administrative roles as well inside of a SEAL team or a SEAL command that you can kind of work your way up to. In a SEAL command, it would be the command master chief, the senior E9 at any one of those commands. But there are mandatory positions that you have to fill along the way. And the the main thing that they're looking at when you go and you submit your package to the chief's board, which occurs one time per year, and I've never been at a chief's board, and they're actually – the people who are there aren't supposed to talk about it that much, but you get a little bit of the rumor mill. And they say you have you know, your record. Your, it literally is uh, probably not a manila envelope, but it's inside of a, just a, you know, a, a binder. You have about 60 seconds to maybe two minutes for somebody looking at your record, and it will get separated into potentially yes, further – uh, further scrutiny and immediately no. And the first thing that they're looking for is your LPO tour, your leading petty officer tour, which you do as an E6. If you have that box checked, you're probably going to get some additional scrutiny on your record, and then they're going to start racking and stacking you against the people who have also submitted their records. But if you don't have it, it gets swept off the table. And I mean, I don't care how many awards you have. I don't care what kind of SEAL operator you are. You either have that box checked or you're not even going to get looked at. So I was doing my LPO tour in 2005, and I got injured overseas, and I got medevaced out of the country before I completed my LPO tour. I did not do enough days for it to actually count, so they counted it as incomplete. And I didn't realize that at the time, um, but I submitted my chief's package uh, two years in a row. In two years in a row, I did not get picked up for chief, and I would say my words, not anybody else's, but I would say my my package was competitive in comparison to my peers. And I actually was able to talk to somebody who was at the chief's board who said and told me that they watched what happened with my particular record and it wasn't even looked at because that LPO box was not checked. And 
I could I was at Bud's at the time as an instructor, and I could have done a, a shore billet tour as an E6 that would have satisfied that. But at a shore billet command, at least when I was in, that is a 24-month tour that you have to complete for it to count as being done, and then you can submit your record. So I had come from the East Coast Command, and there was already somebody who had just started their LPO tour. So I would have had to wait for them to finish, then get put into that position, do that job for 24 months, then submit my package and hope that I was still competitive among my peers. So that would have probably been a 36 to 48 month wait, just, you know, a hamster spinning on a wheel at the E6 rank, which isn't a bad rank by any stretch, but I wanted to continue to progress in my career. So I started researching other options and I found a program called the LDO program or the limited duty officer program that does not require a college degree. There was nothing in there requiring an LPO tour to be completed. Essentially, you it's a potential to get commissioned based off the merits of your service record. So I submitted a package. And in the SEAL community, it's the same package for both warrant officers or LDOs. And I believe at this point, they no longer use the uh, program inside of the Navy because of all things, a lack of participation. They could not get enough people to actually submit packages for the commissioning program. So I put together a package. To, you know, you have to do some essays. You do uh, an oral interview uh, with some officers at the command that you're at. They write their recommendation. You submit a package. And months later, a Navy message comes out. The advancements come out. And there you go. There was my name on the piece of paper. And so it was a way for me. It was When I joined the military, I had no desire, never even had a thought of switching over to be an officer because I have zero college. I barely scraped my way through high school. And for all of the other commissioning sources, a four-year degree is you know the minimum entry to put your cards out on the poker table. And I didn't I didn't have that. I didn't have any interest in doing that. And I certainly, if I'm being honest, I wasn't prepared to go to college at 18, as I think most people actually aren't. I would have done much better later on in my life. But that was the that was the route for me to no longer be stuck. So I went from being an E6 on September 30th to an O1 on an O1E. The E just means enlisted or previous enlisted on October 1st of 2008. It's interesting. It's almost like the Marine Corps Mustang program, you know, where you you they're all very enlisted. Similar. Then. Yep. Yeah. They're all very similar. So did you did you promote then as an officer? Did you leave as an O1? What was your career path from there? Fortunately, on the officer side, if you are still in the military and have a heartbeat, you're going to get advancement every two years. So two years after becoming an O1, they advanced me to O2. Two years after becoming an O2, they advanced me to O3, and I was medically retired as an O3E. And again, the E just means prior enlisted. And it's important because if you were to go from an E6 to an O1, you would actually take a decrease in pay. And so they make sure that you're not going to take that decrease. And I don't think it's about to until about the O3 level that the pays would start balancing themselves out. So it's actually a very important designator if you make that switch from enlisted to officer. But I mean, the reason you didn't complete your LPO tour is you were shot, right? Yes. I describe it as a workplace injury that uh, prevented me from completing my roles and responsibilities. I feel like shot in the pelvis with an AK-47 being described as a workplace injury maybe understates it a little bit. It was not an awesome day in my life, um, and it. You tell people if you tell people you got shot, in person, you know, especially in person, if you're in a conversation, which I avoid telling people anything about my military career in person. Um, it leads to a lot of 
bizarre questions and some really weird facial expressions. And I have just found it's best to avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think in, in mixed company, that's probably true. Um, yeah. You I horrify people. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's just, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fascinating. You, I, we were talking about this before we, we started recording, but it's, it's the whole, you know, we want to be removed from violence. We don't want to think about it happening. So, uh, how, so you were, you were shot pretty close range, AK 47, right? Yeah. What, uh, what happened? What did it do to you? It, I mean, it laid me flat on my back. It wasn't in my pelvis. Um, it was uh, basically, it was, what would it be? Perpendicular directly into the side of my leg, um, a, a millimeter or two from my femur, but very high up on my leg to the point where it would have been above where a tourniquet could have been applied, but it didn't interact with my pelvis. And quite frankly, if it had, I probably would have died. Um, the first so it's like I the trochanter, the greater trochanter at the top of the femur. Yeah, I mean, it's just the pelvis has so many veins and arteries oh, yeah. and blood flow. And what are you going to do to stop bleeding on that? And, you know, tourniquets are an amazing thing, but if you, I mean, you can't tourniquet a pelvis. Yeah, and I know that they have you know shove gauze in and hope it stops. Maybe, or if you had a set of the you know high speed pressure, uh, you know, cuffs or pants or a, a pelvic, which we don't carry in the field, nor do I think that that was available at that time. Uh, it, it spun me towards the person that was shooting and just put me flat on my back. And my first thought actually when it hit me was, okay, my leg just shattered. And I remembered the medical training that they, I mean, they constantly reinforce, you know, when it comes to internal bleeding, you can fit your entire blood volume inside of your quad and hamstring space. And by the time I hit the ground, the first thought I had was I probably have a few minutes left and I'm going to bleed out internally into the, you know, to the, the body cavity of my left leg. God. So did, it broke the, it broke the, the femur? No, I have still never broken a bone and I've never had surgery. Um, the round, my suspicion is um, I never saw the person and I was the first person over a wall. We were, to the best of my recollection, we were, we were looking for a kidnapping cell. And I don't think they had actually kidnapped somebody. I think it was uh, signals intelligence that was leading us to take action before they did. And again, this is back in 2005. So I apologize if I'm my, you know, for anybody listening out there that might have been there who knows the story better than me, hit me up and let me know because I'm doing the best I can with my memory from a long time ago. And I've been hitting the head a lot. So give me a little bit of, give me a little bit of grace on that. Um, so we go out there and, um, you know, we were kind of, <laughs> stumbling our way through a, a block. You know, it was in the area in between Baghdad and Fallujah. And, uh, you know, we're stumbling around, making some noise. And some people saw us at the end of an alley and they ran back into a house. So we pursued them. It wasn't the right house, but we made some noise. I think there was a shotgun breach that occurred inside of that structure. And we came back down and we were using some electronic equipment to, uh, would be the way to broadly describe it, to geographically isolate the individuals that we were looking for. So I was, we were kind of following the, you know, the sensor expert at that point, waiting for him to say, Hey, this is where we're going to go. So he finally says, Hey, this is where we're going to go. And I was walking point at the time. And for people who don't understand the military vernacular, if there's a file formation, that just means I was the person up front. And I remember walking past that house down the alley and the lights were off. When we came back and the guy said, Hey, this is going to be the building we're going to be going into. The internal lights were back on, and we put a ladder up on the fence. Most of the residential area over there is probably going to have somewhere between a six to ten foot fence. 
uh, and wall, and it's very thick dirt wall or mud wall. So I climbed up on top of the ladder, and I was actually looking at the courtyard in the side of the structure that was facing me. And, you know, night vision goggles are great, but if you have a darked out courtyard and a really bright window, it actually washes it out a little bit. So I was looking underneath my night vision goggles and kind of just scanning the area. There's some other windows and never saw anything move, never saw a shadow, never saw an indication. I assumed that there were people in there because the light had come on, but I never saw any indication of movement. Sensor guy finally said, hey, we're going to, this is the place. So we were going to commence the assault. I went over the wall, waited for a couple other people to approach and was making my way to the breach point. I was going to hold security for my buddy who was going to put up a uh, C6 strip charge on the door, which is an awesome way to announce your presence. Way better than yelling police, police, police. Uh, for in sure. my mind. Never been a cop, uh, but let's just say it rings people's bells. <laughs> and your own. If uh, you hold security and you let everybody hide and you turn back around, you're like, you assholes. You took all the hiding <laughs> spots. I guess I'll just curl up in the fetal position and go ahead and send that thing. So uh, it was it was a lot like a modern house where if, if it looked like uh, it would look like an L like this for your viewers. The window that I was looking at was over here. And this section was almost like an extended garage that came out. But it wasn't a garage. It was just another set of windows that were blacked out. And the door was in between a lit window, kind of a walkway coming out and where that extended garage was be. And I was going to hold up on the corner, but I didn't want to turn my back to the uh, window. I at least wanted to take a look into it. And as soon as I swung my head to take a look at it, a round got cracked off. And so I didn't see it. And my suspicion is the person just raised their gun up and started firing. But there was rebar in the windows, which is not uncommon over there. Um, and the first round out was the one that hit me. And I, I am pretty sure it nicked the rebar on the way out. So as it was coming towards me, it was kind of coming apart. Uh, most of the copper jacket in the second or third round that was fired at me actually traveled about six inches down my belt. And the copper jacket of the AK round is actually fused to my belt. It melted to my belt, which is fortunate that the first round hit me because it spun me towards that person, which allowed it to travel down the side of my belt, as opposed Jesus. to me being in the other direction and going through that one definitely would have interacted with my pelvis. Um, so it kind of came apart and it, there's like I have a lot of frag on the left hand side of my leg and it didn't break the bone, but it interacted in some way with the sciatic nerve on my left Oof. leg. So it was by the time I got to the hospital in the green zone, my main complaint was actually my ankle. Not that getting shot felt great. It certainly wasn't a massage, but the nerve pain and I didn't know it at the time. I didn't understand why my left ankle was hurting so bad because it felt like somebody had taken a sledgehammer and just smashed it. So the doctors were very, they were, you know, gingerly cutting off my shoe and, you know, they cut your pants off all that. And my pants were covered in blood at that point. And they put me through an x-ray of my ankle and they're sitting there looking at me like, dude, your ankle is totally fine. Like, how about you go fuck yourself? Because my ankle does not feel totally fine <laughs> whatsoever. And come to find out it was just, that's, the, you know, that was the terminus of my sciatic nerve. So when it, it, it either... I'm sure your audience is familiar with looking at uh, ballistic gelatin and you in super slow motion where you can see the shock waves or the concussive waves as it in, impacts the gelatin. So either the round itself, the pieces of the ferrous metal off of the bar, the copper jacket coming apart, or even just that concussive blast as it was going into my leg, it fried my sciatic nerve. Um, and that's what was causing the, the extreme pain in my ankle. But flat on my back, I actually got pinned underneath a vehicle. It was a relatively sporty firefight ensued both on our side of the building and on the far side and then on inside of the building 
But I was one of eight people that got wounded on target that night. I was one of the less substantial injuries. So there was little birds landing and putting people in the birds and flying them back to the green zone. And I ended up getting put in the back of a, uh, it's not an Abrams tank. I can't even remember the terminology at this point, but uh, it was basically an armored personnel carrier and got taken back to the green zone that way. But I mean, that was it kind of in a nutshell. You know, I never saw the person, never saw any indication that they were, other than the lights being off and then going to on, never saw an indication of them being that kind of locked and loaded, ready to go. Um, and then it just kicked off. How long had you been at DevGrew when that happened? Mm, three and a half years. Okay. So yeah, you're, you're, I mean, you're an experienced operator at that point. Then you come back, <clears throat> obviously there's some damage. What? What's the recovery like from that? Uh, I mean, you'd have to define recovery. It's never going to be 100% for me. I am as active as humanly possible, but I have to be really cautious with some of the stuff that I do. I still have uh, definitely reduced sensation in my left leg. It starts at about the kneecap, and as it wraps over the top of the foot, I start... it's not that I can't feel anything. It's this really weird delayed. It's, it's like if you were to run your fingernails down the side of my shin... About five seconds later, it's this incredibly bizarre sensation of pressure. It certainly doesn't feel like the fingernails themselves, but it it's not numb either. But the biggest issue that I've uh, dealt with is there's instability in my left ankle because of my uh, you know plantar flex, plantar flexing and dorsiflexing. I can push down, but I have a hard time pulling my ankle up. And when I do, my foot rotates just a little bit to the inside, which lends me to rolling my ankle to the outside. So I have to be cautious um, in terrain. And I've modified just the way that I train, uh, whether it's strength and conditioning, like I can do sprints forward and backwards. I, I, I avoid lateral things that are dynamic because I don't want to put that much pressure on the outside and have it roll over. I've done it. Like my left ankle is just covered in scar tissue. Um, and having said that, I live an incredibly active lifestyle and I'm still able to do the things that I want to do. I'm just really cautious. So I'm getting ready to go elk hunting in Southern Montana here in two days. And I, I pick the way that I move through terrain based off knowing things that my ankle can tolerate and then places where I have to be really, really careful. But you, I mean, you, you got back to full duty status after, right? Yes. Um, some of that is probably because the military wasn't paying very close attention to what I was doing. And I was just like, Hey, I'm good. And they said, okay. Nice. But at that point you left. So when you come back from injury, do you leave DevGrew and, and go out to the West coast? It was my choice to leave. I needed some downtime. I was, uh, you know, as soon as I made it through selection, it was in, in late 2002. They actually, we finished, they pulled the people who were going to go to my squadron early and we went and augmented the cars eye detail. It was after the um, ambush or assassination attempt, whatever you would want to describe it as. It was very, very tail end. And they were kind of just backfilling in bodies so they could rotate it out and turn it over to the civilian organization that took over. But then it was the initial invasion of Iraq and then back to Afghanistan and back to Iraq and Afghanistan. It was just this ping pong back and forth. And I mean, it's it's not rocket surgery to determine what that's going to do to a family. Um, you know, multiple years of 270 plus days of a year gone, a couple of years at over 300 days, a year gone. And that, I don't mean that's overseas, but you, you know, you still have to train. If you're going to have individual time to work on your career, you're going to have to go to those schools. There's currency training. There's all sorts of stuff that are required to do the job. And at some point you're going to be faced with a decision. 
Do you want to destroy and implode your personal life or do you want to take a break for a second? And I think most people, to include myself at that time, view that as a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a stupid way to phrase it, but it's, oh, okay, do I need to fix my family and I'll have to sacrifice my career to do so? And it's it's a stupid way to view it because I think you do need both. I mean, if you are, if people who want to be single and pursue that line of work, I actually think it would be a little bit easier. Um, if you go the other route and you are married or in a committed relationship and you add children to that, it's not destroying your career. It's making sure that you're still a holistic human being on the other side of that and you're taking care of the other responsibilities that you need to, even though one of the hardest things to do is just to take a break and you know, go somewhere else. I didn't want to go to shore duty. I did not want to be a BUDS instructor. And then I look back on my, on my time in the military and it was the most rewarding tour that I ended up having. So it was my choice to go there and do that. And I didn't know, I had no thoughts of the officer route or anything that would happen after that. That was just the, the first step that I took because that was the billet that was available for me to take the break that I needed. Were you married at that point? Yeah, I got married very young. I was 23. I had, by the time we moved to San Diego, I had two children and my third, uh, my daughter was born shortly after arriving in San Diego. I mean, it's just, especially at that time, you know, r- right post 9-11 and the, and the, you know, kick off the global war on terror, like the, the op tempo for, for all of the tier one units was just insane. I mean, it was just it was insane it was for everybody. I mean, it was, yeah. it was insane for everybody from national guard from the, you know, I hate, you know, one of the things I, that the soft community, again, personal opinion, I speak only for myself. I don't speak for the soft community. One of the things I personally think that is perhaps lost on a lot of people in the soft community is that our job is not possible without all of the galactic levels of support from either the conventional military or the supporting personnel, the supporting arms that make our job possible. Like, I don't know how to turn a wrench on a helicopter, but I really, really, really want there to be a mechanic who understands how that thing flies because when things go wrong, they have the flight characteristic of a rock. So it's It's because they are a rock. (laughs) They are. I'm not a huge fan. I have not had amazing experiences inside of helicopters, but you have to, it takes all of those things, you know, Oh, tip of the spear. It's like, mm, I get what you're saying, but even framing it in that way, it diminishes everybody else that makes your job possible. I mean, yeah. soft is a spoke in a wheel that has hundreds of spoke. And even at the yeah. highest level, like you still have to have the whole wheel to be able to do your job. Yeah, for sure. And at that point, the entire wheel is spinning like a fucking hamster wheel, right? It is just, yeah. you know, it is, you know, everybody is getting, you know, force reactivated and redeployed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it was, uh, I just remember even, even from the, the stuff that we were supporting that like, it was crazy. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I would describe it as the wheel honestly coming apart in some ways. I mean, they had yeah. to institute what was called the IA program, the individual augmentee where people who had non-combat related MOSs or uh, NECs, depending on which branch you're in are getting orders and you're going to go overseas. And and don't get me wrong, they they weren't, you know, manning a a 50 cal in a Hummer or a Panda or something like that or going out on operations, but if you are supporting combat over operations overseas, you you are absorbing the risk that is associated with being there. And it got to that point because there was there was not enough people to to do what was required. So so you said that the the time you spent Training West Coast SEALs was some of the most fulfilling in your career. Tell me why. Mm-hmm. Because you had direct impact into the future of the SEAL community and what it was going to look like. You had the ability. I 
I remember going through as a student and I was, I was young. Um, I think I was the youngest guy in my class, barely 18. And I remember looking at the instructors and even on my first day of training, it's, it was almost surreal up until they started kicking the living shit out of us and not, not talking like punching us in the face. I'm talking about all of the things that you can go find on YouTube about seal training and crawling through all the sand and laying in all of the ocean and all the telephone poles and all that shit that goes on there. It's all essential. It, uh, but I remember looking at the people wearing the blue and gold shirts. It's a navy blue shirt with green shorts, and it says UDT SEAL instructor on it. And I remember thinking, this is where I've always wanted to be. And I viewed those people, it's a little bit of a sloppy terminology, but I just viewed those people as gods. I'm like, oh my God, these are my absolute heroes. And it's a dangerous thing to think about somebody in that way, because not all human beings are good. You know, some human beings are going to take that position and the fact that you feel that way about them and they're going to manipulate you and they're, they don't have uh, a positive intent. They have a malicious intent. They're there for themselves and not for the community and not to give back. And I remember that as a student. And when I went back as an instructor, I constantly reminded myself of that. And it's your chance to sit down as often as possible and to talk to these kids because most of them are absolutely kids and be a role model and be a mentor and answer their questions. I would try to do uh, it, when students were in second phase, uh, they had a, a curriculum on the schedule called core values, which was often taught by a chief or above. So E7, 8 or 9, depending on who was available. And for a couple of weeks, there was no E7, 8 or 9, and I was an E6. And I would just go in there and I would just answer questions. And it, the questions that the students had, some of them were about war, but a lot of them were, do you think I should get married? What's it like being an operational SEAL when you have kids? How should I, you know, should I be worried about money? I'm 19 years old. Um, you know, should I buy or rent a house? What do you think about this? What do you like legitimate questions? And the power of somebody in that position to sit down and treat somebody like a human being and pass on the knowledge and mistakes that you have made in the hopes that people don't repeat those things, that they can be a better version of you and do things that you were never capable of. I mean, I don't even know what's more what's more powerful than that. It was just so rewarding to see that you actually have your fingers in the clay of what will become the community. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I think it... Mentorship is is really undervalued in a modern environment. Uh, I think we we overemphasize education, we overemphasize training, meaning learning to do a technique. We have come to a point where we really kind of underemphasize mentorship. You know, you go back not that long ago, and and you became something by working with somebody who was that thing, and and they spent time teaching you, and and you learned through their eyes and you, you inherited a lot of their mistakes, uh, without having to make them, you know, you, you, you got their lessons learned. And I think the the problem with the, the modern approach of I'm going to, I'm going to train you to do a technique and I'm going to educate you about the theory, but we're not going to connect those two is you lose some of those lessons and you lose some of that just osmotic learning of sitting with somebody that really knows what the hell they're doing and can say, no, 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 you don't do that. And I think what you lose often is the why. Yeah. I mean, it's one of my favorite questions is to ask why. 
it's easy to teach somebody a tactic. And if they can, at a rote level, produce the results that you're looking for through that tactic, I mean, that's a good thing. That's a good starting yeah. block. But if they understand where it came from and why we need to implement that particular tactic at any given time, I think that's more powerful. Um, you know, mentorship takes a long time. I'm actually glad that I got to experience the SEAL teams pre 9-11. Uh, I did two uh, deployments as a SEAL before 9-11. My first one was to Japan, and my second one was to Guam. And it was a crawl, walk, run approach. I mean, it it is a it is an occupation that, for one, you can never master. There are just too many things that you're always fighting currency with, whether it be, okay, hey, for this month, we're going to go out into the desert, and we're just going to do, you know, weapons and we're going to shoot rockets and throw grenades and worked on 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 tactics on the ground and oh oh shit two weeks into that we need to add some vehicles so we're going to fight out of vehicles and then you come back like hey guys we're almost not current with diving so now we need to shelve everything we just did in the desert we're going to go spend two weeks diving on a ship and then you come out of that oh we haven't jumped in a while so now our jump pay you know and we, our currency is we're gonna have to do two weeks of that well we got to get the zodiacs out now after that and we're gonna go do oth or otb over the horizon navigation over the beach swimmer scouts reconnaissance and just oh hey now we need to go do room clearing but we got to go do it on a ship now we should probably fast rope in so we need it's just it's this never ending let alone proficiency in any individual skill set. Maybe you're a comm guy. You need to go to an advanced comm course. You need to have an understanding of all of the equipment that you have. Maybe you're a sniper, right? You need to stay current on your long guns. Maybe there's a new long gun platform coming out. You need to go get issued one of those things. Are the optics, the you know, the combining those two things, the, you know, taking pictures, sending them back over satellites, you know, long before you're ever going to get to pull the trigger. And, and like those are just those are two not minor jobs, but those are two roles inside of just this massive skill set that an operational element has to be able to maintain. So it just, it took me probably four years until I wasn't wildly dangerous to everybody around me. And I'm not talking about my enemy. I'm talking about to myself yeah. and the people yeah. that I was working with. Yeah. And the mentorship in that is that the mentorship is how I graduated out of that, not graduated, like, you know, move the tassel to the other side of your hat, but just slowly gained enough experience that I was able to operate on my own. And I had oversight and, and I was allowed to make mistakes in training environments and additional oversight and started learning those lessons. And eventually you have enough knowledge and experience that you can have oversight off the next crop of new people that are coming in. But it's not something that you can do overnight. You can teach people tactics pretty quickly mentoring them and getting them to a place where they can mentor others occurs on a timeline that is largely unacceptable to a lot of organizations. No. And it's in, you know, especially in, in law enforcement now it's a huge problem because guys are not staying very long. I mean, people are, you know, retiring at 50 and if they're getting on a team, they begin on the team and they're not there that long. And there's a high level of rotation and force movement and trying to maintain broad skill sets has become very challenging both law enforcement and military. What, what, you know, if, if you, based on the experience you had doing that, if you were going to give counsel to a team that's trying to maintain a broad skill set, what are your lessons learned from that? Like, how would you approach that differently now? Um, if I said, Hey, you're the commander of the SWAT team, they need to be able to dive, you know, they need to be able to shoot. They need to be able to do that. What would you do differently than, than what you see being done? You think? Well, I don't know what SWAT teams are doing now. Um, I have obviously zero law enforcement experience, but to apply that same question to 
the SEAL community, which I can at least speak from a little bit of experience on, um, you might be better off actually task shedding and giving some of those responsibilities to people that can actually focus on it. You know, at a JSOC command, it's not that they're different people. You just remove a lot of the things that they have to be good at. I mean, we would spend six to eight hours a day sometimes in the kill house because our job was to find, fix, and finish. Locate where somebody is, you know, not like by fix them in place. I don't mean put a fence up around them, but you'd be relatively sure that that's where they're going to be. So fix their location. And then at some point, you're going to have to cross the threshold of the door. Well, we spent almost all of our time doing that. And then we would integrate with assets, whether it's, you know, ground assets, airborne assets, bring in, you know, the PJs and CCTs, and they're working in the train and the stack with us. But that is what we focused on. Did we meet diving criteria so we could maintain our pay? Yes, we did. Would we all probably die if there was an actual combat swimmer operation? Oh, fuck yes, we probably would have. And the reality is a conventional SEAL team is better suited, in my opinion, for a combat swimmer operation than development group because a conventional team actually takes the time to focus on that. And that's okay. And like I said, it's the same people, but if you're expected to do 10 things every day and all of a sudden I said, hey, we're going to put you through some additional selection and we're actually, and this time we're going to be selecting you based off of your ability to perform as a SEAL as opposed to trying to determine whether you are physically and mentally hard enough to do this job because that's already occurred earlier in the pipeline. And if you make it, your roles and responsibilities are going to go from 10 to two. I mean, how good can you get at those two things? And, I, and I'm painting with a broom here a little bit. It's not like we were only required to do two things. There were still currencies yeah. and skill sets and all those things. Of course. But the support staff jumped from like maybe uh, three SEAL operators at a conventional team to one support staff to anywhere between 10 to 15 support staff per operator. You can task share. You're not PMSing a lot of the gear. Um, it, it gives you that ability to hyper-focus. So, you know, for a SWAT team, maybe the SWAT team should task share some of the things or load, you know, offload some of those responsibilities that degrade their ability to focus the time in the direction that they need to. And for the leadership, what I would do is I would take the time to rack and stack the priorities of the team, because if you can define what your actual mission statement and mission set is, you can plan backwards and then schedule your time accordingly. If you don't do that, you're just a flag that's being blown around in the wind or a compass that's spinning because it's like, oh, hey, uh, we haven't shot in a while, so let's go shoot. Or, hey, we haven't dove in a while, let's go dive. Like, well, hold on a second. We have limited time. Our, you know, and from my understanding from SWAT teams, unless you're at a, at a massive organization like LAPD, NYC, it's a tertiary duty. You know, you're not just a full-time SWAT operator. So you might be out on a beat. You know, you might be focusing on canine stuff or all of these things. I would really take a look at the requirements and allocate your time appropriately and get rid of the shit that you can get rid of. It will, it will inherently make you better at your job because there's just less to focus on. Well, I think one of the big differences between my military clients and my law enforcement clients, uh, especially when you move more into you know specialized units, whether whether they're EOD units or or SEAL units or or whoever, is there is a very clear understanding as to what constitutes your mission set. Mm -hmm. Like th there is there is this is what capability looks like. You know, even even you think about a Marine unit before they float, it's like you have to demonstrate all of these capabilities because you are 
building towards, a, you know, I, I always use the analogy of an Iron Man, like you're not Iron Man fit, right? I, I've run a number of Iron Mans. You're Iron Man fit one day. And prior to that, you're fucking exhausted or in recovery. And, yeah. but you're, you're building a level of fitness. And, and when you're deploying, you're, you're building a level of understanding, a level of skills, and you have a predetermined, this is what, this is what mission success is going to look like. You have to be able to do, you know, these, let's just make it simple. So you have to be able to do these five things to be deployable. I think one of the challenges for law enforcement is the skill set has gotten broader. The requirement has gotten broader, but it is a constant state of readiness, not a deployment cycle. And there isn't in most agencies, a defined mission set of this is what a successful SWAT team looks like. I mean, I would put that into the category of a leadership failure. The people at the very top need to be prioritizing those things. Yeah. And I think it's, it's kind of that mission essential task list mindset, right? Of, of this is what you've got to be able to do. And I think that there have been a lot of things that have transferred from the global war on terror, from military to law enforcement. And I think, unfortunately, one of the things that hasn't transferred is that. Um, I, I think that, that some of that leadership capability of this is how you maintain readiness and this is how you define what the essential tasks of a unit are um, would be would be great if they were passed down and they just kind of haven't been. We've There's been so much focus on tactics and movement and shooting and, uh, you know, all of which are important, but some of the really good lessons learned, you know, like you said, coming, coming out of training the SEALs of, of just maintaining readiness is, is a real challenge for most agencies. Yeah, but I think it needs to be remembered. And again, my opinion only, the role of law enforcement is more difficult than the job that I did. I had very tight brackets when I deployed overseas that I knew I had to be on. And my goal was to get as current and capable as and lethal as possible before I went overseas. Because all of those things are going to start sliding in the wrong direction as soon as you get overseas. There's no multi-million dollar, movable, 360-degree, multi-story, light variable kill house in Baghdad and Bagram or at an outstation that you're going to be at. So all of those reps that you're getting leading up to deployment that is developing this hyper level of ability and focus and sharpness of the blade it starts dulling as soon as you stop doing those things, which is as soon as you deploy overseas. And I needed to be really ready for what happened when I was overseas. But again, to use a relatively rough analogy, like my time card got put into the machine when I went overseas and I pulled it out when I got out. Nobody's calling me at my house saying, hey, there's a barricaded shooter four doors down. Go get your shit because we need you because you're on the SWAT team. I would go home and I was able to be home. The law enforcement occupation, all the I'm very good friends with a lot of uh, sheriffs and um, officers up here where I live in northwestern Montana. They're not – you're never really off. I mean most of them are carrying 24-7. They are working shifts in the communities that they actually live in, and all of the other duties are just in addition to their regular shifts. So I got buddies who are doing, you know, either on SWAT team or on their narcotics team or they're on search and rescue and they're on call and they never know what's going to happen and when. So that constant state of readiness is so much more difficult to achieve and hold than preparing for something that is six months away or 12 months away or 18 months away, depending on your jort cycle. Do you think that... As a result, it, it may be better to, you know, like you said, to task share, to be more specialized, try to maintain a smaller skill set that is a little more focused. 
I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer for that. And there's so much deviation in size of departments and the way that the roles and responsibilities oh, are yeah. aggregated that I don't think it's possible to answer that. I think you have to do the absolute best that you can to be as prepared as possible. And if you are, I mean, if you're, uh, and I've never worked with the LAPD SWAT team, um, but I'll use them as an example because I know they have a team that is dedicated to that and they're not out there writing parking tickets and then going to do SWAT calls. Uh, maybe some of the people are, the support staff, but if your role is tactical in that way, you have the advantage when it comes to allocating your time and you absolutely should be planning and, you know, reverse planning from what it is your actual, the nucleus of what your job is. I mean, if you're at a, at a department where you're the search and rescue dude, but you're also, I mean, I got a buddy up here who's, he's a, or he was, he's the deputy sheriff, but he's also the coroner for the entire yeah. valley. So, you know, like he's going from a traffic ticket to going to, not that I think he puts tags on people's toes. I, I don't know what the hell he does, but every suicide call, every fatal accident, and then, you know, search and rescue this, high speech, and like, good luck trying to be able to do all of those things. The, I think the best that you can do is is to try to achieve the highest level possible, but the leadership at those organizations where people are, are dual hatting or triple hatting or whatever four hatting is, they have to be aware that you're never going to get somebody to the probably even the 80th percentile. It's a constant battle against currency. And I think the best thing that you can do for your people is to provide them the tools and resources necessary so they can do the best that they can. I think it's also defining what what constitutes you know ready. Like I see it all the time. And I recently interviewed a, a guy from RCMP and we had a whole discussion afterwards about standards and setting standards. And, you know, we, we kind of concluded that the majority of time people are defining standards, they're defining what they would like to see, but not what is necessarily sustainable. And so as a result, what ends up happening is, well, you know, uh, Andy missed the, the run cutoff this month, but you know, he's been injured. So, you know, we're going to give him a pass and we'll, you know, we'll make it up next time. And, and pretty soon, you know, it's not a standard anymore. It's, it's, it's a guideline. It's a, you know, it's a yep. notional thing. And, and I think that, uh, that is a big failure of leadership, um, to, to, to give a clear, this is what we expect you to do because our expectations of law enforcement, uh, I mean, I've dealt with law enforcement for 38 years, right? That that's literally where my career started was with LAPD and LA sheriffs teams were the, the first two teams that, that really trained me and I spent time with. And the, the breadth of skill set that we have placed on them, especially post 9-11, you know, it's like, well, you know, you have to be ready to, to run a Patriot mission because, you know, could be a WMD mission and, and we want you to be able to do, to dive and to do all these things. And it, it you know, the full-time teams manage to hold it together in the same way that the, the SEAL teams do. But, you know, there's, there's less than three dozen full-time tactical units that that is, you know, 60 guys doing that mission in the United States. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, I personally, when it comes to standards, I think that the, in the world that I came from, the battlefield should set the standards and everything should be tailored towards that. Um, and standards, you know, you talked about the drift in the standards. Standards have to be objective, not subjective. You yeah. either meet the standard or you don't. And it has to be blind. And it also has to be published. Here's the standard that everybody has to meet. Nowhere in the standard does it say anything about 
man or woman, because I got that I get that question all the time. What do you think about women being seals? I don't give a shit. As long as they can meet the same criteria that I had to meet, I don't really care. But if you deviate from the standard in the interest of diversity, equity, and equality, then I start having a problem because when you go from a one-way range, which can be super fun and you can hide a lot of inadequacies, and you go to a two-way range, none the bullets flying down range don't give a shit whether you're a man or a woman. And your survivability is based on your ability to perform at ex- levels of exacting standards and only levels of exacting standards. Nothing else matters. Yeah, it's a really valid point. And I think that, you know, in the drive um, for, you know, equality, for inclusion, for whatever, um, we've seen this all over the country where it's like, well, you need to lower the standards and, you know, you need to make the standards more fair. And we're having a hard time in police departments are having a hard time getting people right now and they're having a hard time keeping them. And I would say worldwide, because I deal with teams all over the world. I would say worldwide, 70% is a pretty good number right now. If you, if you're provisioned for 60 guys and you have 42, you're doing pretty well. I I think it's important to remember that the fair is generally in Northern Iowa and there's a merry-go-round in cotton candy. And other than that, you should probably stop using that term Yeah, because nobody anywhere who's actually trying to achieve anything, whether that be with the utmost integrity or a criminal enterprise, they don't really give a shit about fair. Fair is a great academic principle that fails in the real world. And, you know, I'm all about equality of opportunity. I am not about equality of outcome. Again, publish your standard. If man, woman, child, horse, I don't give a shit. This is what you have to be able to do. And if you can't do it, Whether or not you like the fact that you're not going to get the opportunity to pursue that occupation, it is for your safety and the benefit of the other people that would be on the team tasked with doing that job. So fucking get over it. Yeah. And I think, but I think part of that is writing good standards. Part of that is making the standards defensible. Um, You know, we, we pick the standard because not, it's not a, you know, it's not a random, you know, you got to be able to run a 555 mile because if you run a 556, you're too slow. There has to be some rationale to it. Um, let's, talk, let's talk about this too. First off, everybody should stop running. All right. You need to go learn how to fight so you can stand there and fight because running is for cowards. Personal opinion. I only speak for myself. <laughs> That's great. When, yeah. It's fascinating to me. You know, running was a part of the, uh, the PRT, the physical readiness test in the Navy as well. And, uh, can't think of a time ever where I got to lace up some new balances or whatever running shoes I had and wear shorts and a t-shirt or not if I wanted to, obviously sunglasses because I was a seal. I mean, I had to have those on yeah. gators probably, but, uh, yeah, every time I had to run, I had about 80 pounds of shit on me or a hundred pounds of stuff. So your five fifty time, you know, or your, oh, I, I'm doing a, a four, a four thirty mile. That's incredibly impressive. Um, what's your max deadlift? Could you pick a dead body up off the ground? Could you drag me in full kit? What's your mile time with all your stuff on? Like to me, those are the more important things as opposed to a strip down. What's your, you know, your one mile time. That's interesting, you know, because physical standards, physical fitness standards and physical capability. I just recently interviewed Kelly Starrett. Yep. Um, I know and, Kelly and, well. I worked with him for years on the CrossFit side of the house. Yeah. And, and, and you know, the, the thing I love about the way Kelly expresses what constitutes physics. I asked him if you were, you were, 
you were the guy that was defining fitness for a SWAT team and, and defining a you know program for a SWAT team or for a soft unit because he's worked with kind of everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would it be? And he said, I'd spend a lot less time in the gym and I'd spend a lot more time playing and running and doing things that were fun. And, you know, I would, I would have people that had the ability to move fluidly. And from your perspective, running, running seal training, you know, what, what do you think matters in, in, in physical standards? Initially I would disagree with Kelly and he's a good friend of mine. Um, and I disagree with him and it's not his fault that he thinks that he's never done the job. Yeah. And, and you risk, you risk confusing what you see and what you think versus the demands of actually going and doing it. Anybody who's ever worn kit for an extended period of time understands how important strength actually is. Yeah. And strength can be taken too far. You know, I used to say there's nothing, there's no negative side effects for picking up heavy shit. Well, there is if you become a power lifter and you go down that path and, you know, the, let's just maybe call a spade a spade here. The most successful power lifters in the world are taking a little bit more than chicken breast and powdered protein. And I'm fine with that. Like live your life however you want to. I actually wish everybody would tell the truth because maybe I'm interested in what you're taking because you look awesome. And you know, I need to do my own research. So not to get completely off topic, but it's, you can be too strong, but you can also be too fast. I mean, if you look at the body type of people who are finishing first at marathons all around the world, they are yeah. not suited. You don't want it. <laughs> well, it's they're great at marathons. And yeah. for them to be finishing at that level that they are in marathons, they are doing exactly what they should be doing. They are yeah. specialists. A, a, a professional power lifter is also a specialist. I think for a, from a tactical perspective, you have to be a very well-rounded generalist. But it needs to be based in strength training. You shouldn't overdo it to the point where you're overstressing your joints, but just go wear 60 pounds of body armor and all your other accoutrement on your gear, whether it's radio, water, mags, frags, flashbangs, whatever it may be. stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, let's not forget your helmet with, you know, some night vision goggles on top of that thing. And that's... Anybody who's ever worn MVGs for a full cycle of darkness, you take that thing off. It's like, oh, that's the best feeling I've ever had. Even yeah. if you balance your helmet out and you start to put counterweights on the back and or a battery pack, whatever it may be, yeah. or and then still you still added to that, five pounds. Totally. Oh, and, and you add to that, you know, the dynamic of moving around in a vehicle. So it's not like it's an incredible load on your neck, but you're taking that load on your neck. And for people who've worn body armor, they know it's the the strain on your trap muscles is unbelievable. And you take that off and you feel like your shoulders are naturally rising up because they're finally allowed to move. And, uh, you know, I was never a fan of having things strapped to the side of my legs. I tried to keep it on my hip at best or above just because I could move over things better. But to be able to do that, you need to be strong. Sure. And that's and we haven't even talked about, you know, I've never encountered a, a barbell or a linear object that is equally weighted on both sides in real life. And just because somebody can deadlift 225 pounds on a barbell does not mean you can pick up your buddy who weighs 225 pounds in his kit, throw him over your shoulder like you can in the movies, or drag him out of a compound. So you need to be strong, and I would base a lot of that 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 training in functional strength training. I would use nonlinear objects. I would be using kettlebells. I'd be using sandbags. I would be doing drags. I would be doing pulls and an equal balance of upper body and lower body with two things in mind, one capability and two longevity. Because if you don't 
strength train in that environment and protect those joints from those loads. I mean, I can't again, I can't speak to anything in the law enforcement world, but the you know, it's the classic military heavy kit syndrome of neck, shoulders, back and knees. The number of people that I know that are struggling with issues with those particular joint groups, it's it's nearly countless. Yeah, and and I think that a lot of times what ends up happening is that the focus on strength becomes a focus on linear plane strength, you know, bicep curls, bench presses, and and not rotational capability and stability and all of the stuff that, that hurts you when you pick up something, you pick up a person, you pick up a ram, you you pick up a heavy object and rotate with it or go over something with it. All of that. There's show muscles and there's work muscles. Yeah. You can really build your show muscles in the gym, and I'm not saying they don't serve a purpose and they can't work. But I just, you know, I challenge people. Look at a construction worker as an example, and you look at all of the machines in a modern gym. It, let's say you build uh, retaining walls for a living. What what's fixing that range of motion? What what's fixing the plane like on a Smith machine where the bar is locked into place and you have to move along that plane? The answer is nothing. There's nothing on a construction site that looks anything like a barbell that's equally loaded on both sides and you move it in the way that you do in a gym. So why would you train in the gym to be better on a construction site? And the answer is, well, you could do your show muscle stuff, but then make sure you're actually, you know, replicating. My my father was a mason and it was bricks and blocks and buckets of concrete and wheelbills full of concrete and picking things up. And I, of course, I, I had no understanding of training back then because I was 11 and he was paying me $1.50 an hour, which I still think you should go to jail for. <laughs> but, you know, I look back at all those things that the, the job required and the best way to actually train for that, I mean, take care of your ego first because, you know, you want to have your, you know, your back and buys, your chest and tries, you want to look good with your shirt off. I totally get it. But you'd probably be way better served off using nonlinear objects, things where one side of the body at a time, full range of motion extension, flexion, rotation, all of those things, building those muscles to work in that manner, because that's how human beings actually work and move outside of a gym. It's really weird if you think about it. You go into these gyms and you see so many people on the machines, and and I'm not trying to begrudge people working on the machines by any stretch of the imagination, but the range of motion and the locked-in linear way that they're moving, it doesn't exist outside of the gym. So what are you training for? And I think that's exactly what Kelly's point was, is like we, we spend too much time in these linear movements. We spend too much time doing, you know, bicep curls and, and you know, leg extensions and like that matters. But in the yep. end, it, building those muscles to an excessive level is giving up all the stability that comes from nonlinear movement, right? From rotation, from going over things and, you know, all of that. And I, I think that, you know, I think I think you guys are actually in agreement there is 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 more about doing things that are, you know, replicative of what you're going to do in the field. But it's it's not as easy as just going to the gym is. No, but it could actually be more fun. I mean, oh, yeah. I for the first 8 years that I was in the teams, it was back and buys on Monday, chest and tries on Tuesday, and Wednesday was leg day. By that I mean I ran um, cause I hated doing any squats or like weighted stuff with my lower body. And then, you know, Thursday comes around probably time for back and buys again, maybe throw some shoulders in there, a little shrug action because yeah, that's totally necessary. And then, you know, back to chest and tries. 
So, <laughs> I mean, I get it. It's I, I've trained in all of those modalities, and I wish I could go back and slap my younger self in the face and say, hey, sit down for a minute. Let me talk to you about what the job is actually going to require, and let's train down that pathway. So you would do more of that kind of stuff. What else would you do if you were if you were going back now and redesigning the way the teams are training physically? What else would you do? Emphasize uh, recovery and rehab. Uh, I'm not I'm not up to speed on all of the science that is associated with either, you know, sauna, or I mean, honestly, I, I don't stretch a lot or do yoga at all. But the number of people that I have talked to who have claimed to have life changing experiences specifically on the yoga side of the house. I'm not saying it should be like mandatory yoga for SWAT teams, but there's something to be said for, you know, if you think about building all this capacity and muscles, a lot of the time is through the concentric phase of motion, really extending those muscle groups as well. And working on flexibility is, is a great thing. Um, you know, cold therapy. I just, I would emphasize it's so easy younger in life and, it's, it's another thing that people, you know, when you look at performance enhancing drugs, people think, oh, it makes you stronger in the gym. It does through the mechanism of it allows you to recover faster yeah. so you can spend more time in the gym. It's actually it shortens your recovery cycle. It's like, OK, so recovery is actually critical. And it is. And I put almost no emphasis on it when I was training at a younger age. And if you think back, like, how could you really help wear and tear throughout a career? Start making those things a priority from the beginning, which people may not want to do. And as a leader, you might have to be a little bit more positive in the nature of control when it comes to those things. And in the long run, it's 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 incredibly beneficial. Well, and I think you can, you know, just just watching your show and guys that are now at the end of their careers and the damage that they have all endured. And, you know, you think about how long it takes to build a seal, how long it takes to build a good SWAT operator, how much money you invest, how much time you invest, set aside the moral obligation to the operator. Just from a, a, a practicality standpoint, recovery is a hell of a lot easier thing to do and to teach and to put emphasis on than it is to like grind people up the way that we have in the last 20 years. And I mean, you know, there's obviously a huge moral component too. Like I, I have a huge problem with the fact that we are spitting guys out on the backsides of their careers with TBIs, with, you know, with, with drug issues, with, you know, all kinds of stuff. And then, you know, like, Hey, yep, good luck. Uh, you know, and creating an incentive for you not to report anything, because if you tell me you're hurt, then I'm going to take you off duty status. So you're not hurt, right? No, I'm not hurt. Then you get to end your career and it's like, everything's broken. Everyone I know that's leaving the teams, you know, whether, whether it's the SEAL teams or, or the green side of the house are having, you know, <laughs> seven surgeries and, you yeah. know, and struggling to remember their kids' names. And like, it just, it just feels like we're really not serving our warriors well. Uh, I think the responsibility has to be shared. Sure. It, it can't be placed completely on the requirements of the job. We're not talking about autonomous robots. For the most part, we're talking about highly motivated, highly disciplined, intelligent individuals. Yep. And I get it. You don't want to say that you're injured because you might have to take a knee for a bit and maybe you might miss out on the big mish, whatever you might think that is. But I'd rather miss out on a couple big mishes and be able to know my kid's name and sleep at the end of the night or when I'm in my 40s, 50s and later on and be a functional human being 
then knowingly not say anything and not advocate for myself and be destroyed at the end of that. I think the lion's share of the emphasis needs to be placed on the individual and not the mechanism. Do you think that that that's something we teach? I mean, is that how how do we change that culture um, and and create that individual responsibility and and nothing else? Create the education. I mean, I feel like a lot of times, you know, you're making decisions when you're when you're a you know 23 year old seal, 24 year old seal, whatever. Um, you're making you know, like past Andy is gambling future Andy's, you know, mobility uh, and not even realizing it's occurring. I think the most powerful thing that you can do, if I look back to 23-year-old me, the most powerful motivators were the people that were farther along in their career, especially the leadership that I looked up to. And I modeled my behavior largely based off what they modeled to me. So I think the most important thing that could happen is senior leaders who are in positions of influence need to model the behavior that they want to see from the people underneath them. That is a fantastic way to put it. And that, I mean, it goes back to mentorship, right? It goes back to uh, us taking time to invest in you and, and, you know, let's talk about leadership for a minute. So, you know, you've, you've had roles in the civilian world. You've had roles obviously in, in a number of different elite military units, um, and I know that you teach leadership now, like mm-hmm. talk to me about what you see the big failures in leadership are currently. Uh, I think one of the biggest failures that I've seen writ large in the business world is they take the military leadership model and they try to apply it to the civilian world and it doesn't work. Um, if I were to line up a SEAL team, say there's a hundred people there just for easy math you take somebody who knows nothing about the military and let's say it's in the wintertime. So they'd be all in their dress blues. Like, oh man, these uniforms look awesome. And they would have absolutely no idea who the top performers are or the lower performers. They'd have no idea who the good leaders are versus the bad leaders because they don't know what they're looking at. But inside of that 100 people, I'm going to tell you right now, every single person knows who the dog shit leaders are and who the great leaders are. And the problem that I see from the civilian world is they look at the – and I can only talk about the SEAL community. They look at the SEAL community and they go, these people must be the best leaders in the world. So what we're going to do is we need to get them all and we need to hire them in our organization and just treat this organization and do what you did in the SEAL community. And what they're missing is you know, there's only one gold standard in the SEAL community, and that is success. And when you are working for an amazing leader – and what I'll say is this. The best leaders that I ever worked with in my life were in the SEAL community – and the largest, most steaming piles of human excrement that I ever worked with from a leadership perspective were also in the SEAL community. It would have been invisible to anybody outside of that internal group because the end state or the, the end result, it never changed. If we had a great leader, it made our job really easy and we were successful. If we had a shit leader, we succeeded in spite of them because everybody around that person picked up the slack because we were all so incredibly bought in on what it is that we were doing for a living. But if you only viewed it by the outcome, it's like, here's success, here's success, best leaders in the world. And the reality is there's two very different mechanisms that are at play. And another thing that is lost on people looking at military leadership is you have to remember how bought in somebody is at a SEAL team. So you volunteer to join the military, you go to boot camp. 
Navy boot camp, I think it's very fair to say, is not the hardest evolution in the world. It might be challenging for some people, but take it easy. You're going to learn how to fold your underwear in a manner that is, quite frankly, disturbing. And your T-shirts, and you're going to stack them there. You're going to learn how to march. You're going to learn military terminology, naval terminology, and you're going to a little bit be molded from an, a, a me-centric world that you came from in the civilian world to a we-centric world of the military. Well, somewhere in there, if you want to be a SEAL, you're going to have to go volunteer to take a screening test. You're going to go take your screening test, and if you pass, you're going to have to go pick an occupational school, or at least this is the path that I went through, an occupational school, go graduate that, and then you're going to go to BUDS. And so that's a crucible in and of itself right there. Then you get out of BUDS, you know, you're not even a SEAL yet. You've just made it through an additional a training pipeline, a selection course, you don't, you don't know shit about your job. So somebody's gonna have to teach you your job. And now they have like this 18 month training program that I think is fantastic. I believe it's still called SQT, uh, SEAL qualification training. Everybody gets issued their trident at the end of that. And I think it's fantastic because that way, everybody going to a SEAL team, East or West has a baseline template and foundation of tactics, techniques, procedures, a standard has been met. And that way, each individual team can't set their own standard because if you have to work together, it gets really weird. And I'm sure you've experienced this in the law enforcement more like, whoa, why are you guys doing that? Why are you saying yeah. that? It's just way better if everybody's from the same playbook. But then you get to your SEAL team. And then every day, you're competing to do the best you possibly can at your job. You still have to meet the standard. And by the time you arrive at a SEAL team and you have your trident, buy-in is not a question. Everybody, anybody who was not bought in to what it is the SEAL mission is, was gone a long time ago. So it you have incredibly motivated, incredibly disciplined, incredibly bought in people, all aiming in one direction, knowing that success is the only criteria that matters. I've never worked at IBM, but I don't think that's the culture there. No. I, you know, it doesn't take, and, but here's the thing. If that's not the culture there and the military leadership model, even in the SEAL community, we talk to our each other in a certain way. We are very harsh with each other. And it doesn't come from a place of trying to hurt your friends or the people that you're working with. It actually comes from a place of love and wanting to be the absolute best in the world possible at what it is that you're doing. And you can talk to those people that way because they're bought in. You take that philosophy and model and try to bark at people like that in the civilian world, there's going to be people there who this is the only job that they could get. There's going to be people there who are just trying to build their resume so they can go somewhere else and, and, and make the money that they want to make and everything in between those. So the buy-in's not there. You can't treat people that way. And that's why you oftentimes see military leaders leaving the military, trying to apply a leadership model from the military in the civilian world. And they fall flat on their face. It's not, you can't replicate it in an environment that isn't the same ecosystem that we came from. And it seems to be lost on a lot of people. I think it's a very valid point. I mean, I've, I've seen, you know, in, in my career, a lot of people come out and struggle. And they struggle because they come from an environment that is, you know, if you look at it from a SEAL standpoint, you, you've, you have a very thorough selection process that is down selecting to a certain personality type and a certain level of motivation and a certain level of engagement. And, and like you said, a certain level of commitment and, and in a civilian organization, whether it's a law enforcement organization or a private business, uh, that's not true. Like I, I, I've run a, you know, a bigger and bigger business every year uh, since I started my business at 17 and, 
every year the population changes, the number of people change, people's life circumstances change, and you don't have the ability to control them in any way, shape, or form. They can always vote with their feet. And so it is a, a very challenging environment because it's, you know, for lack of a better term, a multi-thread environment. Yeah. Um, and, and everybody's motivated by different things. And I do think that there has been certainly an overemphasis. And I think there are a lot of things. I mean, I teach a class on, on you know, culture-centric leadership that is all about elite practices, right? There are certain things that elite teams all over the world, whether it's law enforcement or military teams, do that are fantastic and can culturally be moved into commercial organizations. You know, like you said, the, the ability to directly and candidly communicate with one another, that that can exist in the civilian realm. Now, it doesn't necessarily, you know, you, you know you're not going to have the ability to say the kinds of things you can say to each other. You know, as a guy who's been immersed in SWAT teams and spec ops units my entire life, uh, you know, there is a direct level of communication like, hey, man, you get a little fat there? Jesus Christ, what happened yeah. to you? Go That's talk not going to work. In yeah, a civilian go, environment. <laughs> go run a business that has 15 employees and talk to them like that and let me know how many you have at the end of the week. It's just, yeah. it's a completely different, and you know, having said that, you know, there's foundational principles and characteristics of leadership inside of the SEAL community that broadly apply. I don't care what you do for a living. For sure. It's how you apply them that actually matters. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. I think, I think that it is certainly... You know, leading in a, in a complex environment like a, a military special operations environment, there is there are a lot of really good things. Um, it's just it's it's kind of like we talked about the training. Like I, I find that some of the stuff that carry that should carry over doesn't carry over, and some of the stuff that does carry over just is 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 lost. And and you see it. I mean, I've watched several friends that have come out. They're really good military leaders, and they get out into a civilian environment. They're like, dude, I. I I can't do this. These fucking people aren't motivated and they don't care about their jobs. And you know, yeah, welcome to the real world. And, yeah. They didn't go through the selection process that you did. Welcome to what the 99.5% of American population is used to. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find when you came out and started working in the civilian world, you struggled with that? No, I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, I tried not to take myself too seriously and I tried not to take the job too seriously. It's just an occupation. It's what I did. It's not who I am. And I had an opportunity, you know, I, like I had mentioned before, I was working with Kelly Sturette when I was working for CrossFit. And so I was teaching the CrossFit conceptual uh, or the level one seminars at the time, doing a lot of the conceptual lectures and just interfacing with people on weekends. And you just kind of, you know, you, you can kind of learn. And it was a nice off-ramp of one experience and an on-ramp onto the other one. So I had I had the good fortune of ha kind of having a foot in each bucket before, you know, that day you go and sign and get your DD214. Yeah, and you're still doing some kind of commercial marketing stuff and some of that on the side, right? What do you mean by commercial marketing? Well, because you, you came out, you were running, you were doing like commercial marketing stuff for CrossFit, right? Helping to build the brand and, and that. I or? was running all of their uh, sponsorship agreements. So my last role that I held, there was two. One of them was managing all the uh, corporate sponsorships. So I was managing the Reebok relationship with uh, another employee who had a law background. And then I was a uh, pilot for the organization. Got it. So talk to me about the SEAL Foundation, because I know that's something else you're very passionate about and have, have put a lot of... Uh, effort into, um, including setting a couple of world records. Yeah, there's actually, well, there's quite a few SEAL foundations. So 
I mean, depending on how you phrase it, the organization that I specifically was fundraising four years ago was the Navy SEAL Foundation, but there's a SEAL Future Foundation. There's there's all sorts of derivations of that. I can't speak um, intelligently about what all of those uh, other organizations do. I can speak a little bit more intelligently about the Navy SEAL Foundation. Um, but, you know, the community that they're trying to service is, you know, directly in the name. So that shouldn't really be a surprise to anybody. But it's I look back and uh, there's a lot of emphasis that's placed on the warfighter, which is good. It's it's a hard job. I actually think one of the ways that you can make a warfighter even more lethal is to support their family to the best of your ability, because there's nothing that sucks more sitting on a Blackhawk a minute out from an objective that that might get a little bit spicy and you're worried about the call you just had with your wife because of course every time you go overseas the washing machine explodes or the dishwasher explodes or the refrigerator stops working or fill in the blank you try to handle all these things on an administrative or logistics side and this you know murphy's law the second you go overseas oh my car doesn't work or this that or the other um and having counseling resources and support for family, having resources for childcare, having even just the ability for spouses or significant others to get together. The military is not great at providing those things. And I don't think they ever actually should be. And I think there is an essential role for non-government organizations and for nonprofits that can really step into that void. Because one thing that I still do believe is that the vast majority of Americans are very patriotic. I mean, there's a certain conversation that could be had about how service in the military has kind of been reframed and just the aims of what this country stands for. And the vernacular in some groups is shifting a little bit. I think we're going to be okay. And I think it probably has shifted throughout the course of history in the United States. But most people will ask you, how can I help? And my answer to those people now, now that I have an answer for it, is work with organizations like the Navy SEAL Foundation, support them. Or, you know, if you come from an army family and you're in special operations world, there's a Green Beret Foundation. You know what I mean? You can find an organization that speaks to your DNA, your family DNA, whatever it may be, and support them, especially if they are supporting the warfighter via support to the direct family members. And the SEAL Foundation, the Navy SEAL Foundation has got, I mean, I can't even begin to get into the programs they have, whether it's uh, healthcare related for people, post-military service, educational benefits for family members, gold star spouses and children benefits. I mean, I could, I would just point people towards the Navy SEAL Foundation website. Make sure you have a cup of coffee and a good amount of time to look through what they offer on their website because it's very robust, but it's all designed, again, my description and, and my thoughts on it, to support the warfighter via supporting the family network. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good way to put it. And, and you're right. I think it is very difficult for the government to provide the level of support. I don't uh, think they that, can. Yeah. I, I don't think they can, and I'm glad that there are, are – People out there who want to start organizations or nonprofits that are dedicated to that area. It's, you know, again, you look at the military. How many things do you want the military to be responsible for? Just like the operator that has to do 40 things versus the operator that has to do four, which, I mean, what level of proficiency do you want? Do you want them to suck at everything or be fantastic at four things? Yeah. And right now, the, the government as a whole pretty much sucks at everything. So, uh, you know, I have heard that. I wish they could get a couple of things that they were good at and do it consistently. 
Yeah, I, I think yeah. that there's a lot to be said about local community support and whether that community is is the local SEAL community or it's people that live in Coronado or it's people that live in San Diego County or whatever. Um, I, I think that we've lost a little bit of that um, supporting the local community. And, and I think that we would probably be wise to bring some of that back. I think so. I think the, you know, it's easy to point people towards national organizations. At this point in my life, I generally start people at what you just said at find something local, find something that is meaningful to you where it's easy to continue to support an organization or an entity when you can see the impact of what your support is providing. You know, I don't know, <sighs> pick a random charity for the United States. And I can't think of an example of one right now, but donate a hundred bucks to a massive organization that services the entire United States and let me know how you saw the impact of that hundred bucks. Yeah, It's tough, not impossible, but tough, much easier to see those instantaneous impacts when you start with a local search and then you can work your way towards a national. No, hundred percent. I mean, we started a family foundation and, and initially your, your inclination is to donate money to big things that are going to make huge differences. And you realize that, you know, if you give, you know, insert name of large organization here. Cause I don't want to malign any of them, but you know, your, your hundred dollar gift to that will not have the impact that your hundred dollar gift to the local, you know, veterans of foreign wars or, uh, you know, homeless shelter or pick something that is local where that money will actually make a difference. Right? Yeah. I don't want to talk money to a local of- family. Yeah, I don't want to talk people out of uh, supporting national causes. Sure. My point was, you'll see the impact of it quicker at a local level, and it and from a sustainability perspective of continuing support. When you can see the fruits of your labor, it's it's a little bit easier to sustain that support. Yeah, let's talk about the show for a minute. What what prompted you to start Cleared Hot? Like, what what was the motivation behind it? So I kind of operate under the theory that you should listen to people that are either more experienced, more successful, or smarter than you. For me, that is very easy because I am a functioning moron. So almost everybody that I encounter has more experience, uh, more intelligence, and more success than I do. Totally Um, understand. If I had written out a 100 things while I was in the military that I was going to think about doing when I got out, you would not have seen the word podcast on there because I didn't know what they were until far, far too late. I'm definitely a late adopter. And I got introduced to them when it was around the time that I was doing the jumping stuff for the Navy SEAL Foundation for the fundraising. And I did a podcast uh, called the Wadcast Podcast. And it was actually a very CrossFit specific podcast. And there was a man on the show called Tate Fletcher who introduced me to uh, Brian Callen and Brendan Schaub, who host The Fighter and the Kid. And later on, uh, Tate, I guess Tate has known Joe Rogan for quite some time. And he was on an episode with Joe shortly after he and I had met. And afterwards, he called me up. He goes, hey, man, you and I are going to go on Joe's podcast. I was like, okay. So I went on the podcast, had no clue the size, scope, scale of his show. I honestly, as far as I knew about Joe, I think I knew he was a comedian, but it was like, cool, I'm going to get to sit down and talk to the Fear Factor guy. Yeah. Maybe we'll talk about eating like raw bison testicles or yeah. something. I really yeah. didn't know what to expect. I was not immersed in that world at all. Uh, the second time I went on, I went on by myself. And in between those two, Joe and I kind of linked up directly and became friends. And he's a fantastic human being. Uh, Joe is 
a lot of people ask me about him, and I just tell me he's the exact same off the air as he is on the air. And he is for where for his station in life, he is one of the kindest people, and legitimately cares. And I, and I wish more people could see that side of him, but it would be impossible to, you know, he's, the listening audience. There's no way he can really show that to all those people. Second time I was on there after we wrapped it up, he goes, you know, you should look at starting a podcast. And I was working with a brand, um, the law enforcement people will be familiar with this brand, 511 Tactical. At the time, I was one of their ambassadors. And I had told the guy that I was working with, because um, I think I had worn something 511 on the podcast that time. And I had told the guy that I was working with as kind of my uh, liaison there about what Joe had said. And he goes, you know, why don't we buy you your first kit? And so it was really Joe's idea. I just kind of took his advice. And I was working with a brand that was willing to put out some capital to buy a very inexpensive, very small kit. that was two microphones and a Zoom. I think it was the HD6 recorder. I literally had a you know, microphone stand and I would hold it in place because they would wobble back and forth with a Rogue Fitness five-pound plate that you'd put on the end of a barbell. And that's where it all started from. And I, uh, a friend of mine came up with the name. And I like creativity and the ideation. I struggle with that a lot of the times. It's not my strong point. I definitely lean on people for creative ideas. You know, the logo behind me, this is John Dudley created the Arrowhead logo there. It was somebody else's idea to get the neon sign, somebody else's idea to go from two microphones to four or add video. And just about every step I have taken along the way and almost everything I've done in my life, I have not been the originator of the idea. And I definitely try to be open and honest about that. Um, I listen to people when they when they talk. I listen to people who are successful and when they give you advice. And I try to do the best I can to follow through. And it, so very long-winded answer to the short question, but that's how it came to be. What do you see the mission of the show is? Oh, the mission of the show. I don't necessarily know if it has one. And I don't necessarily know if people realize how cathartic it is for me to actually create the show. Because it allows me to explore areas that I am interested in and just listen to people who are passionate about things, talk about what they're passionate about. And I've been able to reconnect with some friends who I used to work with and have conversations about things that we never had when we were in the military. And maybe because we didn't feel comfortable doing so, or I don't know, maybe as you get older, a little bit of the square edges end up rounding a little bit. But as far as me, like my guiding principle is I try my absolute best to be open and honest and transparent and just tell the truth and to highlight the shortcomings of my life and who I have been along the way, the shortcomings of my military career, the mistakes that I have made in the hopes that somebody doesn't have to make them the way that I did because some of them fucking hurt and uh, they did make me the person that I am, but that doesn't mean that everybody has to make those mistakes to be the person that they want to be. Yeah, sometimes we can uh, learn from the mistakes of others and not have to repeat them. And it, yeah. it, I mean, that is ultimately the guiding principle for the debrief, right, is is take people that have been in these situations, take people that have led in, in these situations and put them in front of the broadest professional audience we can. Um, you know, my entire career has been focused on protecting tactical operators, and that that might be in my day job with with gear. It might be in, in stuff that I teach, uh, and it, it may be this. I mean, this grew out of us doing a lecture series. Yeah. And we would do, you know, because we deal with teams all over the world and a lot of different teams and have a lot of conversations. And I went to a lot of debriefs, and, you know, sometimes I would sit in a debrief and just go, man, God, I wish, you know, th this, everybody needs to hear this debrief. 
And, and that just didn't happen. There, there isn't that mechanism to share it. And sometimes it's because the information is, is not information that can be widely shared. But, you know, as you know, there are ways to talk about this stuff that is, you know, can be open source and nobody really understands, yeah. but people that do it for a living walk away thinking, oh shit, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't want to do that. So but yeah, I, I totally, totally identify yeah. with that. Even the most sensitive things that I was exposed to in the military, there are ways to talk about them in a broad yeah. sense. There were people can leave with the message that you're trying to convey without releasing anything that's sensitive from a TTP perspective. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, the thing is that most of the lessons learned in operations are not, you know, it's not classified technology. It's not how you got there or, or you know, sources or methods. And, and like most of that doesn't matter for purposes of the, this is what I learned. And the, you know, cause, cause the screw up is, I mean, tech always fails. The gear always fails, right? That's, that is yep. a, a given in the, in the world. But um, I, I think that it is, it is those interpersonal relationships and leadership and, and training and, and that stuff that really is very generic, but, but it's, it's sitting down with people that have that experience and having that conversation. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, podcasting is an amazing medium because it's global in its reach. Yeah. You can really expand the size, scope and scale of the impact you have. Well, and I mean, you're sitting in Montana, I'm sitting in California, you know, we're sitting here face to face, even though we're, you know, hundreds of miles apart and, and recording in, in, you know, HD and, and perfect audio, uh, without ever having to sit in the same place. And it's, it's just the ability to bring information, especially to a selected audience. I mean, really like what, what, when, when I watch cleared hot, I'm watching cleared hot because of the kind of people you're curating. Yeah. It, you know, my list litmus test for people that I'll host an episode with is whether or not it's interesting. I mean, I'm fascinated by what other people are passionate about, and I, I like learning. I don't, you know, one of the lessons that was taught to me early on is if you ever get to a place where you think you know everything, you probably should start looking for a new job. Yeah. And I think, I mean, honestly, even from a mental perspective, I think the desire of continued and pursuit of knowledge and learning, it helps from just keeping you as youthful as you can be, you know, keeping the muscle between your ears, which is, I believe is to be the most important one exercising, just like everything else that people are training. Yeah. I mean, in the end you are either getting stronger or you're getting weaker. Yeah. I, yeah. I think those are pretty much the two binary choices. Yeah. There, there is no, there is no homeostasis. You're not like, you know, you're not just sitting around and doing nothing and, and getting better. You are, you are getting weaker. You are getting dumber. You are getting fatter. And I think a lot of what I'm trying to do, you know, every year in personal life and every year in professional life and is constantly strive for how do I get a little bit better? Well, you're definitely getting weaker if you run a lot <laughs> and that fair. should be remembered and tattooed yeah. on somebody's forehead. Yeah, that's very fair. Learn, learn how to fight. Yeah, that's very <laughs> fair. What? So talk to me like on the show, if you look back over the course, how many shows have you done now? Um, if you add in the Friday episodes somewhere between 400 to 500. So four or 500 shows, when you look back, what sticks out? What are the really profound memories? That's a tough one because I have, I have talked with so many different types of people. Um, I think the most profound thing in general is just how powerful other people's experiences are 
for them. If you never leave the world that I came from, what you're going to find is people having generally similar experiences that are powerful, but it's a narrative that's as old as time. That's anybody who's ever been in a profession of arms. And you start talking to people about the experiences that they have had in their life, and maybe that experience is a horrendous upbringing from a family that was both physically and mentally uh, abusive, and what they were able to do with that and how they dealt with it. Or somebody, you know, I've talked a lot with a lot of people about uh, the positive impacts of psychedelics that it can have. But I hosted an episode that'll be out here in about two weeks with a guy that, you know, at a young age almost broke his brain with a psychedelic experience. And I wanted to talk to that person because I don't think it does. It's a disservice to only focus on the potential positives and not highlight the potential risks associated with this type of stuff. So it's just... It's just the power of these experiences that people have. They, it just fascinates me. And that's the biggest thing that I take away from it. Yeah, I, th I think we, we forget the power of story, right? Human beings evolved because of story. What separates us from animals is, is the ability to relay information and the ability to share. And before written word, before anything, we had story. And, I mean, and, that in an, an opposable thumb and a much larger brain. Yes. Yeah, but there, there's a pretty good argument that that much larger brain evolves from the ability to communicate in part, right? And, and I think yep. that, that it's – that I think that's what makes – especially long-format podcasts, what you're doing, what I'm doing, uh, what Joe Rogan's doing, the, the sitting down with somebody to actually have some time to know who they are and not just catch a – 30 second soundbite of them, you know, passing on a, on a news coverage or a, a video. Yeah, I would agree. Um, what's coming up, what's coming up on, on cleared hot that people need to be watching for. Um, let's see, I got about four episodes in the can right now. So that's about a month worth of the Monday releases. Uh, you know, I just had a hour long, just over an hour long conversation with Sebastian Younger. It actually came out today. I have no idea when this episode will come out, but uh, for people hearing this, and you're in the veteran community, I would, I would go back and listen to that. It came out November 10th. Um, you know, he was never a soldier himself, but he has written so much about the impact of that environment on and what it can do just to the human psyche. That was a that was a really cool conversation to have. Uh, I got a uh, border patrol agent talking about the realities of what he saw on the border and talking very openly about what the current border, I don't want to use the word crisis because I think it's overused, situation actually is. Uh, who else is in the can? Just talked to, uh, did a podcast with a guy yesterday, uh, backseater in both F-35s and F-16s and just taking the lessons learned from, you know, being a military aviator and how he has passed that forward. And his whole purpose in life now is to try to influence the younger generation, the people that, you know, are somewhere between the 18, 18 year or late teens to, you know, late twenties and taking those lessons and making sure that they're not lost. So that's, what's kind of on the near term horizon that what I've already got in the can. What, uh, what's the best way for people? I mean, obviously cleared hot on YouTube. Uh, what's the best way for people to engage with, with what you're doing? It depends on how they want to get engage. If you're going to be an asshole, then just do me a favor and don't bother. <laughs> uh, Cause I'm not going to read your comment anyway. Um, 
I'm not crazy active on social media platforms. I would say Instagram is probably the one I'm the most active on, and it's just my name, Andy Stumpf, with the number 212. Uh, yeah, there's the podcast. You know, you, you the podcast, just put in Cleared Hot Podcast. You'll find it on all the uh, traditional platforms. And that's probably the best way. Beautiful. So I'd like to end with five questions. Rapid fire, fire quick answer, uh, you know, initial reaction. What is your most sure. important habit? My most important habit, consistency. That's a good one. What's your favorite current online resource, website, or podcast? Pornhub. That's a joke, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> uh, man, my favorite one. Is that as an educational sore? Oh, never mind. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not here to judge people. Maybe it's educational. Maybe it's recreational. I don't fucking know. Um, my favorite online resource. It's fascinating. We have access to more information than human beings have ever had access to. And some people, they, they really lose the forest for the trees. Uh, honestly, as dumb as it is to say, YouTube. I have learned so much by just going to YouTube and typing in, how do you? It, what, you know, the setup that I'm using right now on Riverside, I was I actually switched over to doing some remote stuff on Riverside and I went to YouTube. How do yeah. you do this? How do The cameras that I have in the studio, the equipment that I have in the studio, where do you get studio lighting? What lighting should you use? How? And I just went to YouTube and put that stuff in there and- God damn, there's so much information. Yeah, it's fascinating. It it is both made us stupider and made us smarter at the same time. It it it, yeah. it it really is fascinating how, you know, I can make an argument that we've gone down to an eleven second attention span, but then Joe Rogan has the most successful show in the world. So it's yep. it's kind of bifurcated us into uh, you know, book reading morons and people that actually want to get smarter. For sure. Um what do you think the most important characteristic of an effective leader is? God, that is tough to put into one. But if I if I could put it into one, it would be control of your emotions at all times, regardless of what's happening in the world around you. It's just infectious, both for the escalation of emotion and the de-escalation, which will help you objectively think. Yeah. What's something you've changed your mind about the past few years? The reason I can't have an answer off the top of my head is there's actually been quite a few things that I've changed my mind about over the years. Uh, you know, the military leadership model and just leadership in general uh, is is one for sure. I have definitely changed over the years how I speak about it. I actually end up cautioning most organizations. I will literally open a speech about leadership, cautioning an audience about applying the military leadership model without understanding what it is that they're doing. Uh, I mean, as dumb as this sounds, Love. I uh, I was married for 19 years and 11 months and got divorced. And I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life by myself because I didn't think I didn't think it was a real thing anymore. And then I found somebody who changed my mind about that. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I you know it's interesting because the older you get, the more you realize that in the end, and you know, I've, several of my mentors in the last few years have died. Uh, you know, guys that when I first started my career took me under their wings and, and made me smart. And, and you do come to the realization that none of the shit you did matters. It doesn't. Like the I only am the thing most that matters is the relationships. Yeah. I am the most disinteresting person 
to my children on the face of the earth. Yeah, I totally understand. I am just yeah. their dad. I'm just their dad. <laughs> they don't give a shit about any of the other stuff that I do. And yeah. I could spend all of my time trying to do this, that, or the other and define myself by occupations or occupations and job titles and totally fuck up my relationship with those kids. And that's actually all that matters. Yeah, it, it it's I've watched so many of my friends and, and I, I grew up in a house that, that I didn't want to grow. I didn't want my kids to grow up in. And so did my wife. And mm -hmm. so there was a conscious focus on on our kids and putting the kids in the center of the life. And and it is fascinating as the kids have gotten older, you realize that it like I was I was jokingly say, you know, how many other people's kids would you be willing to kill to protect your own? And it's it's you know, I if your answer is anything. Them. All of them. Exactly. Yeah. That, that is the only <laughs> right answer. Yeah. For clarity, everybody out there, we're talking about this metaphorically. Yes. Like your children are safe <laughs> around me. It's fine. It's a, it's a fictitious statement. It is only a thought exercise. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, it really is fascinating how you think you understand uh, what love is and what caring about something is. And, and then you have kids and you realize like, oh my God, I, I totally get it now. I, I, think that's, yeah. I think love is a really good answer to that question. Uh, last question. What's the most profound memory of your career? Hmm. God, I don't even think about it that often anymore. Uh, probably the day I got out, to be honest with you. I had spent so much of my time earlier in my life thinking about what I had wanted to do, but it didn't extend beyond that first job. And then it comes to an end and you have to have a conversation with yourself about what's next. Who do you want to be and how do you want to get there? And a lot of people struggle with that and that's okay. It, I don't think it's designed or possible to be super seamless in that. And I also don't think that people should avoid struggle and, and come to this realization where life is all about feeling good and everything is easy. I think it's designed to be difficult, but that day where, you know, you have to hang literally and metaphorically, you hang one uniform up and then you have the rest of your life in front of you. Try to figure it out. That's a great answer. That's a great place for us to stop. Andy, thanks for your service to our nation. Thanks for what you're doing with the podcast. And, and thanks for joining me today, man. Yeah, you're very welcome. And and let me just be very clear. I, I didn't do that much. <laughs> I didn't. I mean, I'm just being honest. <laughs> I love that answer. Thanks, man. Yeah, of course.